Good morning, everyone. If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. While you're turning there, for those of you just joining us, we're just beginning a short series on the subject of holiness. But before we dive into this topic, as it is our typical pattern and practice to preach through books of the Bible, I want to take a moment to explain to you why we are spending a month talking about the nature and the necessity of holiness. First reason is personal. Some of you know that I spent uh, about six weeks earlier this summer uh, during a time of sabbatical. During that six weeks, um, one of my prayers was that the Lord would give me a clear understanding and desire for holiness. Now, I want to be clear, this was not necessarily because there was any particular sin in my life that I was aware of, but instead what was happening was that I had recognized within my own soul a growing, you can say, apathy towards my own sin and beginning to reckon with this reality that there was complacency creeping in and I knew myself well enough and I knew enough of the holiness of God to know that that was a problem. And so... I dove into reading and to thinking and asking the Lord for more of a sense and understanding of His holiness as I read and I reflected the Lord graciously granted clarity and conviction and a hunger for holiness. And part of what we're going to be talking about for the next month is flowing out of that. So the first is personal, but the second is cultural. Because I believe that many Christians struggle to grasp the beautiful necessity of holiness and why and how we are to pursue it. People seem to either pursue it legalistically, pursuing holiness kind of from a position of strength, a position of pursuing it in my own strength, in my own righteousness. And what it does over time is it produces a rigid soul that is very, very harsh and can be hard as our souls shrivel and our lives grow maybe in outward conformity but lacking the love, joy, and peace of God. On the other hand, there are many who take the approach of license. So they see the fact that God has forgiven us of all of our sins as license to not pursue holiness. If I'm already granted entrance into the kingdom of God, why must I therefore pursue holiness? And so what I want to do this morning, and what my hope is for this this whole series is that it's going to lay out for God's people a recognition of why holiness is not only important but necessary to their lives in such a way that they will love it, long for it, desire it, and pursue it. And we're going to start this whole process. We're going to start this whole series where I think you have to in a study of God's holiness and a study of really what that means. And we have to start it by looking at the nature of the holiness of God. And so we're going to do that from probably one of the most Famous, and you could say maybe the most well-known visions of God holiness in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father, I come before you as a man with unclean lips, an unclean heart. My only claim, Father, of cleanliness, my only claim of holiness to be clean, Father, is because you have already sent your Son as a sacrifice to wash me. But Lord, I never want to forget this reality, Lord, that it is my sin that made his death necessary. And I know that, Lord, until we see you in the fullness of your holiness, Lord, we will not fully grasp, Lord, the great need that we have that Christ came to satisfy. And so my prayer this morning is simply that you would allow us to see you in your glory. Lord, my words are not enough. My skill is not enough. My study is not enough. Your spirit must open the word to your people so that they can glimpse a vision of the glory of God. And so that's what we pray this morning. Lord, that you would remove all distractions. You would remove all sense of why does this apply to me? Do I need to hear this? And that you would help us to see God in holiness, Lord. That you would allow us to do that for the good of your people this morning and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I want to begin this morning just with a question to you. When you hear the word holy, what do you think of? I'm serious, take a moment. And what do you, I don't say, say it out loud, but just think. <clears throat> I think holiness is one of these words that um, we use like it's, the more you use it, the less it means, right? And in church, that definitely happens. So I want you to ask the question, what does the word holiness mean? What comes to your mind? Stop and think. For some of you, if you're honest, it's the phrase holy cow. Or it's something my dad used to say, which I've never heard anybody else say, holy moly. Maybe it's an adjective, a, a holy person, a holy place. Or maybe it's a negative idea, someone who is kind of stiff and self-righteous, like a, a holier-than-thou sort of person. Or maybe it's a song, holy, holy, holy. Whatever it is, I think if you are normal, and by normal I just mean, I think what I see in most of Christian culture is my guess is when you hear the word holy, your description or your understanding of what it means is somewhat vague. You could probably give me some words that are related to holiness, but if you had to define holiness, and had to define the holiness of God, you would stumble and you would struggle. And even if you can, my guess was 
that you might question whether or not that's relevant for your life. Right? If you go to the, the Christian bookstore, you can find lots of good Christian books on leadership, missions, parenting, marriage, and on and on and on. They abound. And I actually think that's a great thing. So I'm not knocking Christian books on those things. But you're going to see relatively little ink spilled, particularly over the last 50 years, on the necessity of seeing God as holy. And yet in the middle of all that, and into that void, we see the first seven verses of Isaiah 6 speaking with clarity. Because in these verses, God grants maybe one of the clearest pictures in all Scripture of His holiness. And it's important because in Isaiah 6, we have the beginning of his ministry, and really I think we're meant to see Isaiah 6, 1-7 as the vision of God that anchored the ministry of Isaiah throughout his lifetime. And I believe it's one that we desperately need today because as A.W. Tozer says, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. So let me say that again. If you're wondering why this is relevant, to think deeply and understand the holiness of God, he is making the claim that it is essential to not only systematic theology, but to practical Christian living, and that it is to worship what foundation is to the temple. In other words, it's foundational. And so my goal this morning is to do two things, is to give you a vision of God in his holiness so that you might pursue holiness well. I'm going to take it for granted, and we're going to be talking more about this in weeks to come, that if you're a Christian, that you want holiness because the Holy Spirit resides in you. And what I want to do is I want to help you see why a vision of God is holy is essential to that pursuit, Okay. So again, I'm not going to try to convince you to pursue holiness. I'm not going to try to talk about a lot of the other peripherals. We'll get to that later. What I want to do is I want to lay the foundation for that, which is a vision of God and His holiness. And we're going to do that in two ways. First, we're going to see an image of God's holiness. An image of God's holiness. So I know that I'm kind of, I've been playing on the East Tennessee illustrations heavily over the last few weeks. I get that. But I did grow up in East Tennessee, and that is the foothill of the Smoky Mountains. All right? Right, Joyce? Anybody else been to the Appalachians before? That's right. Guys, that's God's country. We love it. All right? There's, a, there's, a, there's just a rustic beauty to the Smoky Mountains, right? And so if you had asked me as a child, what is a mountain? The first thing that would have popped into my mind, because that's where I camped, that's where I hiked, that's what I knew, would be the Smoky Mountains, right? I thought of a mountain as the Smokies until I visited the Rockies. <laughs> and driving across the Great Plains and beginning to see the Rockies loom large in the distance as they went up and up what seemed like miles. And then I saw these snow-capped mountains and I saw these peaks that were twice the height of the highest Appalachian mountain what the Rockies did is they elevated and expanded my mental image of what a mountain was. And I think what we see in Isaiah 6 is something similar for Isaiah. See, Isaiah would have been able to tell you God is holy. 
But what this vision did for him was it elevated and it expanded what it meant that God was holy for him. And my hope is that it's going to do that for you this morning. So we read in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his temple, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we know there's a couple things. If you're a Bible scholar, you know there's a problem here. It says he saw the Lord, but can anyone see the Lord? Right, John 1.18 says that no one can see the Lord because he is invisible. But what we see in this vision, or what we call sometimes a theophany, is what one commentator calls, calls it when God clothes himself with visibility for the good of his people. And in this particular vision, God is revealing a glimpse of his holiness for their good. In other words, God is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But every now and again, he makes himself visible for the good of those and for a specific, for those who see it, and for a specific purpose. And in this particular case, he's revealing himself in holiness. Now, I want you to first notice the royal imagery in verse 1. It says God is doing what? Sitting upon a throne which is an image of kingship. He is high and lifted up. He is not just a king in the earth. He is the king over all the earth. This is an image of saying that the God that we worship is not just one among many gods. He is not just the God of the Israelites or the God of the Americans or the God of the West. He is the God of all gods. He is sitting high and lifted up. He is the king. Everything, all world events, all powers, all authorities are under his authority. The ideas of a kingly, noble, exalted, powerful ruler, so much so that the train of his robe, and we don't do robes today, and we don't have, robes don't have trains. For those of you who don't know, it's talking about the train, how it trains out behind them. It's the, the long flowiness of the robe, and it says it fills the temple. But next in verse 2, we notice that it's not just his position that is exalted, it's also his royal attendance. So in verse 2, we read this. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Now, this is an interesting idea because I, I'm, I'm currently reading George Washington's biography, and I've just read this part where he is sent to England to be able to get expensive cloth so that he can clothe his servants and make them look Glorious. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would George Washington care what his servants wear? Because he knows that the glory of the servants speaks highly of the one of the glory of the one that they serve, right? If even his foot servants look glorious, then the means the one that they wait on is even more glorious. And so in this case, what he's saying is that these seraphim, which literally means burning ones, and it's interesting that it's burning ones because this is an image of fire. And throughout the Old Testament, the picture of God and his holiness is an image of fire. So we have a burning bush as the presence of God in, in, in Exodus 3. We see God burning on a mountain in Exodus 19. We hear God described as a consuming fire. Fire is the image of God's holiness. And then the seraphim are literally called the flaming or the burning ones. And they are equipped with equally interesting appendages. They've got six wings, and with two they cover their face, with two they fly, and with two they cover their feet. Now, what's the point there? Well, the idea is, though, even though that they were created to guard the glory of God, to 
care for his holiness and attend to it. They do not have the ability to fully grasp, grasp him and see him in his full holiness, and so they have to cover their eyes. The way I like to think about it is this. I have an old computer that every time you try to do too much on the computer, it would just crash. Anybody have one of those computers before? Right? It's like you just can't do too much with it, or it's just like the whole thing breaks down. And he's basically saying that if these individuals were to intake the full glory of who God is, it would cause them to crash and to crumble. And so they cover their eyes. But then two, they also cover their feet, which there's a lot of debate about why they cover their feet. I think probably one explanation that I think holds is that they, as feet, it was their connection to the earth, their recognition that they were creatures. And so they had to even shield the, the flesh of their feet from the glory of God. But as interesting as these characters are and these servants, I think what is most primarily important is the song that they sing. So in verse 3, we see, read, that they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if you've ever studied Hebrew before, which you may or may not have, you, you don't know, if you, you know then, that they don't have, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? They don't have superlatives. So we have mighty, and we have like mightier, and then we have mightiest, right? And so if you're trying to understand and say something in Hebrew like it's a really bad pit, you wouldn't say a, a worse pit or a really bad or worser pit. I don't know, how would you, how would you say that? You would say it was the pit of pits, right? Or if you wanted to say it was not just gold, that it was pure gold, you would call it gold gold, right? And that's like Jesus in the New Testament. He'll go, truly, truly, right? This is not just true. It's absolutely true. And so he's trying to communicate to you by the superlative the truthfulness of his claim, the purity of this gold. And so when we see holy, holy, we know this is the holy of holies, Right? But this is the only place and the only time in all of Scripture where there is a superlative that is raised to the third degree, which means they basically had to invent a way to be able to explain the holiness of God. So he doesn't say God is holy, holy. They say God is holy, holy, holy. There is nowhere else in all of Scripture where a superlative in relation to God is raised to the third degree. And so when that happens once in all of Scripture, it is something we are to take note. It is something that we're intended to be able to see and give weight to. I like how one commentator puts it. He, has, he said, it's as if to say that the divine holiness is so far beyond anything that the human mind can grasp that they had to invent a super superlative to express it. God is holy, holy, holy. But now we come to one of the primary issues that you may have already identified. What does that mean? And the word holy is a very difficult word to explain in its various usage. But when it's referenced to God, but when it's in reference to God, it is especially hard because what the word holy means is, is it's speaking of God's transcendence. God's trans. I hope I didn't just define a word by another word that I need to define, but hang with me. And in this particular regard, I think R.C. Sproul has been incredibly helpful. In his book, The Holiness of God, he says this. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. 
Transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. The word is used to describe God's relationship to the world. He is higher than the world. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. In other words, God's holiness emphasizes his distance from us. We are creatures. He is the creator. We are flawed. He is perfect. We are weak. He has all power. We are dependent. He is dependent on no one. We are many. He is utterly unique. We are empty of life and goodness apart from him. He is overflowing. Our best acts are as filthy rags before him. And it brings us to this point where you see as we get into verse 4 that the nature of God is so incredibly powerful in his holiness that when it even comes in contact with the created create with the creation that it literally shakes in verse 4 we read and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house of called and the house was filled with smoke in other words that to say that god is holy is to acknowledge that our best efforts don't rightly capture his beauty his glory his purity and his power he is beyond us and it's only as we come to see him in this way that we come to rightly worship him and our lives reflect his holiness. And so I want to make a point here. Isaiah was writing to a culture that was going through religious actions, that was doing a lot of right religious things, and yet they were doing it with zero understanding, zero recognition of the holiness of God. And so God actually condemns it. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. Now these are the very things that God commanded his people to do in the law. How can he be saying that now he hates them and they're an abomination? Because they were doing these things with no sense of the holy God that they were doing them for. They were going through the religious motions and their lives were still marked by wickedness. They were saying they loved God and yet their lives portrayed a very different story. They were devoid of true devotion and love towards God. And this is what happens when people have no sight of God as holy. Another thing that happens is that people begin to view God as nothing but imminent. My brother was talking about the reality that we can approach God as Father and that in Jesus we have the Holy God in flesh and so we can approach Him with familiarity and love. And those are true statements. But you don't even understand the reality of what gift we have in those things until you see God in His holiness. George, I think the thing that's my big burden is that I can say these words day in and day out and it can make you fall asleep. And they can seem to have no impact and have no, they can just be words to you. But until you see God as holy, your whole spiritual life is going to be flaccid. It's going to be weak. It's going to be impotent. Because what God knows that Isaiah needs is a vision of who he is so that these vain pretenses of religious 
actions look absolutely ridiculous to him. It's a reminder that the central, that's central to the Christian life is first beholding God for who he is. And that's what I just want to mention to you this morning is not just the, the end goal of this sermon, but hopefully every sermon, that you would see and behold God in his glory. And the whole time that we're singing, it's not meant to be an opportunity for you just to be able to kind of get jazzed up by music, but for that you be able to respond to God in his holiness. And I think if you come here today and you are not moved in any way, shape, or form by the glory of God, and it is only a religious observance, I want to tell you that God says, I hate it. If there is no sense of him and his holiness, it is, a, it is absolutely an offense to him for you to show up and not care at all. And I know that particularly in the Southern Christian culture, this is so common where we do things because our parents did them, our grandparents did them, and we don't care about the glory of God. And that is absolutely offensive to God. It doesn't bless him. It doesn't please him. It doesn't get a star on our moral blackboard. It doesn't matter to him. In fact, he finds it disgusting. So what do we need? What we need is we need to be able to see him in his glory for who he really is. We are to be able to gaze on him in faith, relying on the spirit to make him clear to us. I think one of the, the, the big things that I've seen in my burdens as a pastor is just recognize that I can preach a sermon and it doesn't matter how well I do if the spirit doesn't take it and open up the eyes of God's people to who he is. In verse 18 of, of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me say this again. You and I may not be able to see Isaiah with the same vision and clarity in that way that he did. But when we gaze on the glory of God in the pages of Scripture... It is the spirit that opens up that word so that we can see him for who he really is. And I promise you that what you need, more than you need a book on parenting, more than you need a book on anything else, is you need to see the glory of God. And this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. And what this does is this puts us in a position of dependency because we recognize that even when we come to the word, that even when we come to church, that even when we come to God's people, we don't come thinking, I'm going to get something out of this in my strength, but it comes and brings us into a place of dependency. And I was like, Lord, if I approach your word, as I approach your people, as I approach this teaching, as I approach this meal, as I approach this prayer, would you grant me a vision of your glory? Because it is only in by the power of your spirit that I can see you for who you really are. But the second way we see God's holiness on display, so we see an image of his holiness, and the second way is we see the impact of God's holiness. What we see in the next few verses is the inevitable impact of God seeing more clearly, of seeing God more clearly as he really is. And we see that what happens when you begin to see God very clearly for who he is in holiness, not, I think I get a little bit more about God, but you see his glory, 
you will begin to see yourself more clearly as well. As we see in verse 5, Isaiah says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Let me say that again, how I'm sure Isaiah would have said it. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. When's the last time you said that? I get it. It's not a phrase that we use much today, and so it's easy to kind of think that he's being melodramatic or he's being like, I'm really sorry for myself. Like sometimes we, we tease our kids with a, about a, having a woe is me, Eeyore attitude, right? But that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing here is he is actually using a statement that is specifically talking about the condemnation and judgment of God on a person for their wickedness. So Jesus in Matthew 23 says of the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's a word of condemnation and assured disaster. It's the exact opposite of blessing, which is the assured good and favor of God and righteousness and favor. Interestingly, Isaiah will use the same word to condemn, uses the same word to condemn Israel's wickedness in Isaiah 5. He says, Israel, you're wicked. Woe to you, all this. But then Isaiah 6, when he sees the glory of God, he says, woe to me. Not woe to you, woe to me. And then he says, I'm lost or I'm undone. Depending on the translation, the word carries the idea of to cease to exist, to cut off, to destroy. He's saying, I am wrecked. And he's not simply talking about emotionally wrecked. He is worried for his life. He knows that it's in jeopardy. Why? Because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, it's interesting here, Andrew and I were talking about it earlier this week, why does he talk about the idea that he has unclean lips? And there's a lot of different explanations for this. It could be that he says unclean lips um, for a lot of different reasons, but I think probably the best explanation is that he is looking at an outward manifestation of what we know throughout Scripture is coming from the heart, right? Jesus will say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he identifies the problem as their mouths, but really by inference, because that's the outward place. By inference, he's talking about an unclean heart, the center of who they are being, un being unclean. But one way or another, whatever the answer is, the point is that it is his sin, his uncleanness, his unholiness that was the source of it all. The problem was him. But the interesting thing was that he didn't see, didn't know that he was unclean. He didn't see or realize the weight of his sin until his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, again, he didn't truly see himself until he had seen God and his holiness. And again, I'm, I'm going to quote here um, R.C. Uh, Sproul because I, I can't say it any better than he did. But he says of this passage, in that single moment... All of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah had compared himself to other mortals, he was able to stand lofty, have, sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed morally and spiritually annihilated. 
I think the biggest thing I see here is that this is just a basic biblical understanding of conviction. Conviction of sin in light of holy God is not awe. I recognize that it would have been better if I had done something else. When it's kind of your sin is brought up, it doesn't be like, oh, well, look at everybody else's sin. They're worse than me. Church, when we see ourselves and begin to see God and his glory and his holiness and his righteousness, the first thing that it does is that we recognize our own sin and see ourselves as unholy. It's just not that you see it, but that you are broken over it. And I think there's probably some of you in this room who have never, ever experienced this. That when I talk about brokenness over sin, deep conviction, you're like, that sounds like melodrama. That's never been me. And I think for you, I would just say this morning, if that's you, if you've never really been broken over your sin, if you've never seen yourself in light of God's holiness, the first thing I would encourage you to do is to pray before you leave, God, show me your glory. Show me your holiness that I may see myself in light of who you are. Because the foundation of a walk with God begins with the brokenness of repentance when we see ourselves in light of his holiness. And the pathway to a deeper walk with God always comes with greater clarity. I've heard it said, and we've talked about this over and over again, that the idea is not that you would repent once at the beginning of your life, but that your life would be an ongoing life of repentance. As God reveals every day more and more of his holiness, that you see yourself more and more in light of who he is, and that it brings you more and more to the throne of grace because you recognize your need. If the last time you repented was when you came to know Christ, let me just tell you the time is today. Because you right now, I promise you, every one of you are living in sin that God is graciously forgiving you. The question is, how aware are you of it? Now at this point, Isaiah sees himself rightly condemned before God. So he's, he's halfway there. He knows that he's unclean. He knows he's rebelled and rightly against a God. He is rightly, he's rebelled and rightly stands guilty before God, condemned, ready to die. He knows God is right in whatever judgment he pronounces because he has now seen himself as he truly is. And he knows that God is right. And I think this is just part of what repentance is. He knows that God is right to say, you condemn me, I deserve that. I think at the heart of a heart that is, bro at the heart of, uh, of repentance is this recognition that if God were to condemn you, you would justify God and say, you are right to do what you want. You are right to judge me because I am everything that you say I am. So God is right to judge but, in this, but then we see that the holy God intervenes in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
So what happens is one of the guardians of God's holiness goes to this altar, which is the place where the sacrifices were laid up for the forgiveness of sins, grabs a, a hot burning tong and goes and touches his lips, that place of uncleanness, and burns it. And in that process, he says, your sin is atoned for. Now, there was nothing magical about his lips and nothing magical about the, about the, um, the coal but the live coal encapsulates the ideas of atonement, propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation as it is brought from the altar. And therefore, what he is doing is he is pronouncing forgiveness. Isaiah is not paying for his sin. He's having his sin atoned for. It was certainly a painful experience, but the source of atonement was the sacrifice which was being offered in the altar. His sins were being taken away. And how were his sins being taken away? because they were connected to the offering. And church, what we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament was this sacrificial system by which innocent blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. That the only way the guilt or the condemnation or the uncleanness of something that was rightly guilty and judged and condemned could be removed was that if something else, something innocent, was killed, was crucified, was taken care of, was, was, blood was shed in order for there to be cleansing. And we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament that these sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again and again and again. Why did they offer these again and again and again and again? Because they just had a thing for blood? Because that in the blood there was supposed to be this constant reminder that you and I need redemption, need cleansing, need forgiveness. But only when we come to the New Testament do we realize that the holiness of God that makes us need forgiveness was also what drew, what moved God to actually enter into the creation and actually send his own son to be able to meet and to be able to take on the, the distance that is created by his holiness and to be able to erase it by forgiving these objects of his wrath, by forgiving these unclean ones, by forgiving and washing clean these unholy objects and making them right and making them holy by the blood of his son that the atonement and the forgiveness that we are given is coming to us specifically and solely by the blood of Jesus. So when we look at holiness of God apart from the blood of Jesus, it is a terrifying thing. But when we look at holiness in light of the blood of Christ, we recognize that it is his holiness that actually moved him to come and rescue a people who did not deserve condemnation, I mean, did not deserve righteousness, did not deserve favor. They deserved nothing but condemnation. And there was no way that these people, there was no way that Isaiah, there was no way that we can ever walk in a full recognition of Oh, an acceptance of what God has done for us until we first recognize our sin and then our need for atonement. And I just want to say, if there's any in the room today who are walking in a place blind to the glory of God, blind to His holiness, and do not understand their need for atonement and do not think God will offer that freely, I just want to say to you, as we are about to move into a time of the Lord's Supper, I just would ask that you would come and speak with one of the pastors after the service. Because the reality is that there are only two kinds of people, those who are going to stand under the judgment of a holy God because they have not walked in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Christ and those in standing in their condemnation and those that are going to be cleansed 
by faith in the Son whose sin has been paid for and whose sin has been atoned. And so our ability this morning to understand the fullness of what Christ has brought us is increased by a vision of God and His holiness. And so our love and delight in Him should also be increased as we overflow in worship. Church, we worship a God who is not only holy, but has also atoned for those who are unholy, who has also erased the sins that separate us from Him. And if we aren't aware of the weight of our sin, we'll never be undone by the goodness of what God has done for us in Christ. My hope this morning is that if nothing more, what comes to your mind when you hear the word holy is Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. But my hope is also that he will give you a hunger and a thirst for more of him, to know him in his holiness, to see yourself in the light of his holiness, and to rejoice in the holiness that he freely grants. Church, we serve a holy God, and it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we come to see him and know him and walk in him and enjoy him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness. And we ask and pray, lead us and guide us this morning to understand and to walk and to see your glory with greater clarity. In your name we pray, amen.